you'd stand to your feet. Our passage this morning, subtitled in my Bible, The Triumphal Entry. So verses 28 through 41, this is the very word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is the word of God for the people of God and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, as I uh, preach your word this morning, I just pray that your word go forth, that um, we get lost in the truth and the significance of this story, that it consumes our minds and hearts. And in these few moments, I pray the, um, the power of spiritual transformation and illumination would take place in our hearts, that we would see the truth that your spirit would intend for us and give us to see each individually and as a church body, that we would understand the relevance of this text in our own lives today. And God, I pray that as I preach, I would decrease. Lord, you must increase. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Well, this uh, past Friday night, I took two of the boys. Um, to Nashville for a college baseball game, and uh, we, we, uh, we love to do this periodically, and we got in the van and got out on the road, and, and they were all, they got their little backpacks and their baseball gloves and a couple movies, and so uh, got out on the highway, and one of them said, uh, Dad, can we watch a movie? And I said, sure. What do we have on tap this, this, this evening, this afternoon? And we put the, um, uh, the movie in, and uh, sure enough, for probably the 4,312th time we were watching Robin Hood. And, uh, and it's, a great, it's a great movie. You know, at some point in there, once you've kind of heard it, by the way, I think if this thing went off, I think I could just keep narrating and they wouldn't even know the difference because I've heard it that many times at this point. And at some point, it hit me just what a glorious story it really is. Of course, I kind of knew it from the time I was a kid, but, but the idea that there is this, this man named... Robin of Loxley, he's kind of the, the hero among the people, and, and Robin's allegiance is to this good and true king named King Richard. Now, King Richard has been uh, already um, uh, coronated as king, but he's off in a, in a distant land, uh, extending the territory of the empire, and while he's gone, um, his, uh, uh, the, the, there's the ignoble Prince John who is uh, reigning over the land. And Prince John is exceedingly selfish, prideful, and evil. And his whole goal, not only does he lord his authority in an oppressive way among his people, he wants ultimately to um, take uh, 
take their livelihoods, uh, oppress them, and use their means for his own glory. And as he builds his false kingdom, he even declares himself to be king. Well, Robin Hood's not having any of it. Robin Hood is believing fully that one day the good and true king will return. And that when he returns and reigns over his kingdom, it'll be worth him that day to have served him in this day, even if it costs you persecution and suffering in this day, even if it costs you your own life. Robin refuses to bow a knee to the false evil prince. And his whole goal is to take all the resources that the prince wants to use for evil and to figure out a way to steward them for good and to extend and bless and love folks and extend the empire of the good and truer king until he returns. And he lives in expectation of that great day. Does that sound familiar? It's a good story. It really ought to, in so many ways, be the story of our lives, that Jesus is king. He's been inaugurated king. He's gone away in his own parable, say in Luke 12, to a distant country. But he will return. And when he returns to sit upon and reign over his glorious kingdom, we want to be those loyal subjects who have been long anticipating his return, laboring amidst the harvest while he was gone, refusing to bow a knee to the evil prince of this world, like we heard last week, being in this world, but not of this world, and using every possible means and resources to expand his kingdom until he recomes. And this story this morning is the story of the triumphal entry. It's the entry of a king to lay hold of his throne. At least that's what we're intended to expect. That's what the disciples would have expected as they throw their cloaks on the ground and begin to chant the song of David. They think he's going to lay hold of his throne. And yet the twist in the plot is that he comes not to reign, not this time, but he comes to die. He comes as a sheep led into the slaughter as Isaiah prophesies. And he'll come this day to die, and yet this day is a reminder that he will come again to reign. In the same story, the same book, our Bible, the inerrant, uh, authoritative, sufficient word of God has the whole story. And it includes the story of his first coming and the story of his second. So today what I want to show you, I want to walk through this story of the day the king came to die. And I want to make a few observations, and it is going to leave us with a reminder that the day is... Uh, soon coming when he will come to reign. And my hope is this message would help us to live accordingly in these days in, be, in, in the in-between. Okay, so as we begin the text, let me make a few observations. It's uh, probably subtitled in your Bible as well as mine, the triumphal entry. It's the idea of a king uh, coming uh, to lay hold of his throne. When he had said these things, speaking of Jesus, he went on ahead, going up, that's up in elevation to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples forward to find this colt. Now, let me stop and give you a little context here. This is now six months fast forwarded from what we've been in John. Where we've been in John is uh, the six months previous to this um, feast of uh, Passover. We have been at the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember the discourse going on in John uh, 7, 8, and 9 where we've been the last few months? I kind of like the, the way the, that has put the ball on a tee. We're pausing John right now to go into kind of this uh, time of preparing for Easter. This is six months. So all the, the, the conversations you're thinking of, the, the, uh, the dialogue and discourse Jesus is having with the Pharisees, their desire to kill him uh, as uh, uh, he claims uh, his rightful divinity and is sharing who he is. That's six months previous to this. Now this, like the Feast of Tabernacles, is another one of the three biggest feasts in Israel where all the Jews come back to Jerusalem. And in this particular feast, Passover, they're, they're going to be slaughtering hundreds of thousands of lambs in remembrance 
of, uh, of God's faithfulness to them as a people all the way back in Exodus, 1,500 years earlier, where God saved them by the blood of a lamb. You remember the story, Exodus 12 and, um, and following, where God told them to take the lamb and, and they had to take it on the 10th day, kill it on the 14th day, take his blood, uh, the blood of the innocent lamb, spread it over the doorpost. The angel of death came through, killed the firstborn of everyone that was not under the blood of the lamb. So the means by which God saved you was by grace, you didn't earn it, through faith, believing in the promise of God and being under, covered by the blood of the lamb. Uh, God was not merely saving them in that moment. He was foreshadowing, he was pointing forward to how he would always save Israel and save all of his people. And so they're coming together. Every Jew comes and celebrates God's faithfulness in Egypt and celebrates his faithfulness in the future that one day he'll ultimately save by the blood of the lamb. This is why the ministry of John the Baptist, you remember when he came on the scene and he knew he was the forerunner of the Messiah. Some knew that of him, some didn't. But when he saw Jesus, do you remember what he said? First words out of his mouth, behold, that means strongly take notice the Lamb of God. Now, if you're just an innocent onlooker, you're like, that's a strange thing to call Jesus. Not if you understand Old Testament Judaism, that every year they're coming together, slaughtering lambs in anticipation of one final uh, sacrificial lamb to, be, to make atonement for the sin of the people who would be the Messiah, the promised one, given all the way back in Genesis to Adam and Eve, the one that would crush the head of Satan, even, even as Satan bruises his heel. And so when John says that, he's saying, here's the fulfillment of all of those Passover feasts. Behold the lamb. Paul would write to the Corinthians and he would say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the final sacrifice made for our sins. Okay, so they're gathering in Jerusalem, every God-fearing Jew. And remember Jesus, he's uh, grown in his popularity, his fame, I guess you could call it. Uh, everyone knows who he is at this point um, in the nation of Israel and many beyond. The Jews' hatred of him, or at least the Jewish leadership's hatred, the Pharisaical hatred of him, has grown immensely. And that's why I love this on the heels. In those conversations we've just been having in the fall previous to this spring, Jesus has been saying, uh, I and the Father are one. How can you say this? Um, he said, well, I come from the Father, and I've come to do his will. And I say only what he gives me. And if you have ears to hear, you'll know me. But if you don't know the Father's voice, you won't know my voice. And they're getting more and more frustrated with him. And he says, the reason you don't understand is uh, because I am from above, you are from below. And, they're, and, and uh, they're saying, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. And he's saying, no, what your lack of faith in me is showing is that you're really still slaves to your sin and children of the devil. Okay, they hate Jesus. He's not just an inconvenience. He's not just like a thorn in his side. They want to do away with him. It says over and over in the discourses we've seen in John 6 and 8 and 9, they want to kill him. He's a threat to their leadership. Um, he's a threat to their, um, uh, their uh, vocation. Like, you know, what they do is, is uh, the Pharisaical leadership of Israel, their influence, and they want him gone. And so the most dangerous place for Jesus to be Right now, as our story opens, um, six months later, the Feast of Passover, where they were gathered, would be in Jerusalem, which is seething with, Je with Jewish authorities. Matter of fact, let me give you a little snippet um, that comes out of uh, John 11, of the conversation taking place at the time. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus. But as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. So the entire 
feast is commandeered by Jesus. Everyone's wondering, is he going to show up? What do you think? And the idea is he's got to show up. He's a, he's a law-abiding Jew, and it's lawful to come, and so he's the perfect Jew. He has to be here to celebrate Passover. And then the other school of thought is he can't come. They're, they've got an uh, edict order for his arrest. They're going to arrest him and kill him. Of course he's not going to come. So everyone's just looking for Jesus. Two million Jews gathered at this particular Passover feast. Everyone's talking about Jesus, looking for Jesus. Will he come? Will he not? And here we see Jesus on the Mount of Olives, just east of the city, preparing not to make just some kind of a backdoor entrance. Like if it were me, I'd be thinking, yeah, I guess he's got to come, but it's going to be a real subtle entry. Like he's going to have to sneak in there. My, I would assume our passage would be called the covert entry. And yet it's not. It's the triumphal entry. Uh, matter of fact, one Jewish historian said, if we understand the context right, this was the most courageous act in the history of the ancient world because of what he does and what he does signifies. So watch it with me. He's east of the city, Olivet. By the way, that'd be probably the first observation I made. There's something about him just being east of the city, coming in through the eastern gate. There's eight gates in, uh, around the temple. The eastern gate's also called the golden gate or the beautiful gate. Um, it's the prominent gate that when world empires have conquered Jews, the king of Assyria or Babylon or whoever it is, taking them into exile, will march, will do a procession through the large eastern gate. It's the closest gate to the temple. They'll profess, their followers will sing their praises, declaring them king. They'll go, they'll make sacrifice at the temple to declare themselves head over religion and state. And, uh, and they'll be king. And they were even considered gods, little g gods. And so uh, the people would wor literally worship them. And so here comes Jesus, he's east of the city, heading towards the eastern gate. Interestingly enough, Ezekiel, uh, chapter 10, Ezekiel prophesies clearly that uh, time of the Babylonian captivity, 590, 586 BC, the glory of God, he said, departed the eastern gate. The land was in darkness. They're going into exile. And it'll be that way until he says in Ezekiel 43, he prophesies that the Shekinah glory of God would return to the temple through the eastern gate. So he just sees a vision of this. So the Jews have a, have a hope and a belief that the Messiah will come to the eastern gate. By the way, uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, 16th century um, uh, Ottoman Turk empire was so aware of this prophecy that he sealed up the eastern gate with stones to try to prevent the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah from coming in and conquering his empire. So today it is sealed up. I don't think that has Jesus worried, but it's sealed up. Um, Okay, so there's expectation. First observation, the coming of the king. Here he is on the Mount of Olives. This is right where the Jews are expecting the Messiah to come through the eastern gate to go to make sacrifice upon the altar, to claim uh, his throne and to rule, to establish his, his reign and his rule uh, over the whole world. And so here he comes. Now, look at the mode of transportation. He tells the disciples, go into the village in front of you where on entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. This, this term he gives himself is the Lord God. You tell him the Lord God has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, uh, and found it just as he told them, uh, and as, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And apparently that worked because they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set him upon it, 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Here's Jesus commandeering a colt, the foal of a donkey, to ride into Jerusalem. This would be unintimidating to the Roman Empire. Jesus on a donkey. What is he doing? I'd say what he's doing, we could call this the declaration of the king. This is the most powerful possible declaration he could make to stake his claim to the throne as the Jewish Messiah. Here's why. If you know your Old Testament, there's a, a um, Old Testament, generally speaking, is a um, record of the interactions between God and his people, Israel, in anticipation of him giving Messiah. Again, all the way back from Genesis 3, uh, from the time of the uh, Eve ate of the apple, Adam standing passively by, man was separated from God in sin. But God didn't kick him out of the garden without giving him a promise that um, uh, the ground will be cursed and, and childbearing, uh, God have mercy on you ladies, will be a struggle. And, um, and the serpent uh, was cursed. And, and then he says, but just as this, this tempter uh, will ultimately strike, uh, bruise the heel of one that I will send, he will crush his head. Like there's a redeemer that's going to come and restore all that's been broken and reconcile you into my presence once and for all. From the very beginning, a promise goes forth. And throughout the Old Testament, we, it's, it's almost like the Old Testament is whispering, someone's coming. Someone's coming. When Abraham's called to sacrifice Isaac at the last second, um, there's the, the lamb in the thicket that would take, the ram in the thicket that would take his place. There's a substitutionary atonement, a foreshadowing of one coming who will take our place in judgment from the Exodus. Uh, all the way through, we just keep, keep hearing and seeing one foreshadowing after another of this ultimate Messiah who would come. And there were many prophecies specifically dealing with the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Um, uh, many of you guys know that he's to be born in Bethlehem, out of Micah, that he's to be born of a virgin, uh, out of Isaiah, that he's to be uh, in the line of David, both the bloodline of David, which comes through Mary, as well as the right to the Davidic throne, which comes through Joseph, and both Joseph and Mary come from David's line. There's all kinds, there's dozens of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. One of those prophecies is out of Zechariah 9. The prophet Zechariah prophesies this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So the king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's going to save you. Humble and mounted on a donkey. That's not generally the way we think of a king coming to rescue and to reign. But he'll come humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is saying this, Israel... Be awake and on the lookout that when the city of Jerusalem rejoices over one who is coming on a foal the colt of a donkey, humble and mounted on the donkey, this is your Messiah coming with salvation. Don't miss him. So when Jesus tells his disciples, guys, go get me the foal of a donkey, every Jew would have known this. The, the, the disciples are kind of saying, okay, we're going to go get this, uh, this donkey, Ike. Like, we know what this signifies, and he, it, what do we do if, if we can't, you know, can't, can't get it? He says, you, you tell them the Lord has it, the Lord God needs it. Jesus is declaring to the small group of his disciples, this is it. I am he, I am coming. But what he does by mounting this donkey and riding it is a public declaration to the whole world that I am he. I'm the promised one. I'm the one Zechariah prophesied about. I am the Messiah. I am bringing salvation. And just as Isaiah said, he comes, not triumphantly on a white steed, the way that uh, empires, emperors would, would come in and rule and, uh, and, and make sacrifice and establish their kingdom. He comes on a donkey, humble as a lamb being led to the slaughter. He comes. Don't miss the declaration of Jesus right here. 
he is saying, I am Messiah. Bring me the donkey. Now, not only is there the coming of the king from the east and the uh, declaration of the king that he's Messiah, there's going to be an announcement, just as there is with any triumphal procession. There's an announcement by his followers. Look at this. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, now here's the announcement of the king, are you ready? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's what they declare. They gather, they sing his praises, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I love teaching this right here on the heels of what we've just seen. Because if you remember, it was no more than a month ago, we were um, in John uh, 7, and we were talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember this? And I told you about the history of that uh, feast, that they would, seven days, they celebrate, they live in these little shanties, they, they, they make little huts, little tents, and they had a huge nationwide camp out with over a million people. It'd be incredible. The kids loved it. It was the favorite ceremony uh, and uh, the favorite feast of all the children of Israel, without a doubt. And uh, every day they'd have a worship service, but on the last day they'd gather, they'd uh, uh, process around the um, temple courts, and then the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, and he'd get the chalice full of water, and he'd bring it back, and um, he'd hold it up to the people, and he'd pour out a water sacrifice, and then they would sing the Hallel, which closed in Psalm 118, uh, 24 through 26, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna means save us. It was a celebration that God saved us. Um, he didn't let us die of thirst in the desert. And he's saving us now. The, this is rainy season. This is the beginning. It's going to rain in the next three months as much as it does in London in a year. God, bring the rains and save us today. And that one day he'll save us. One day he'll bring the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They'd point forward to that day. And they'd wave palm branches and they'd sing. And what was so cool about that feast that we saw a month ago, we're in uh, John 7, is remember what Jesus did six months ago? He's at the feast. It's in that moment, the pool of Siloam, the priest has the water, and the pregnant pause before he pours it out, Jesus cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who drinks of me, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He commandeered that moment the most significant moment on the Jewish calendar to say, I'm he. Well, here we are six months later. And here's the feast, not of tabernacles, the feast of Passover. Here he is riding on a donkey and his followers are coming. They're waving palm branches, uh, the other gospel accounts give us. And they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing David's song from the Hallel. They're singing the Feast of Tabernacles celebration song. They're singing the promise of Messiah to come. But they're singing it at Passover. The timing's all wrong. We have Easter Sunday coming up next Sunday. This would be like you rushing out to get a Christmas tree this week and getting all your ornaments down. And if you have a good, good brother in Christ, he'd say, oh, whoa, 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 you got your holidays mixed up. That's Christmas. That's where we celebrate Christ's coming. This is Easter. You'd have to correct them. Well, this is all wrong on the timing. This is tabernacle celebration at the Feast of Passover. But let me tell you, they're not mistaken in what they're doing. They're not confused. They are rushing out, crying out, palm branches. They're singing the song of tabernacles because they're declaring, you're the one. 
You are the one we've been singing about, prophesying forward to, living in expectation of for 1,500 years. They're declaring Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messianic promise of tabernacles. So the announcement of the king is made. And watch the reaction here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke them, rebuke your disciples. They're saying, you better correct them. They're declaring that you're the Messiah. You're coming as an imposter if you lay hold of those claims. If you don't correct them right now, you're a blasphemer. You better rebuke them. This will be the rejection of the king. Look what Jesus says to them. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There's two pretty common ways to understand what Jesus said to them. I think one, maybe both of them are uh, housed in what Jesus meant. The stones would cry out. One is the idea that uh, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then he's the greatest imposter that there's ever been. He's the, the greatest false prophet in history. He's the greatest blasphemer in history if he's not who he said he was. There, there's just no place to say, I don't believe he's the son of God, but I think he's a great prophet and a good man and a good example and a good moral teacher. There's not. The man claims to be God. He says you must repent and trust in him for your salvation or you can't be saved and you're a son of the devil. If he's not the son of God, he's the greatest blasphemer that's ever lived. And that's what the Pharisees think. That's what Israel thinks. They will ultimately take him and arrest him. He'll give them himself over to be arrested. They're going to beat him and spit upon him and flog him and take him out and make him carry his own cross to be crucified. They are going to deal with this one that they consider to be the greatest blasphemer ever to live. And if they're right, and if Jesus truly is not the Messiah, then you would expect to follow such discernment and obedience by the Jewish leadership to bring God's blessing upon them. And yet that's not what happens historically. Soon after Jesus dies, about 37 years later, they're going to experience the most cataclysmic and epic judgment that Jerusalem's ever experienced in uh, the history of Jerusalem. Rome under Titus will come in. He will crush the city. They will set ablaze the temple. They will burn it to the ground. They'll uncover every single stone and change the, uh, uh, use the, the, the remains to, uh, to mine out gold. They're going to kill so many Jews and stack the dead bodies so high that you can't even uh, walk along the temple grounds. That judgment will persist for the next 20 centuries where they will be in darkness and they'll be plagued by persecution. They weren't blessed for this. It brought upon judgment. And Jesus says, if they don't say it, the stones are going to say it. When these stones are burned to the ground and mines for gold, they will declare in the judgment of Jerusalem that I was who I said I was. That's one understanding of what's housed in the stones will cry out. They would. They would cry out that Jesus was who he said he was. We made a mistake, Israel. We missed the time of his appearing. That's exactly what Jesus says in the next two verses. The other way to understand the implication of what Jesus is saying, which I think is also an equally true, 
is that the stones are a part of creation, which is subject to the fall, subject to the curse. Um, I think this would be a relevant, relevant illustration today. I, uh, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to go to Augusta, Georgia. I had a chance to uh, walk the grounds, uh, the hallowed grounds of Augusta National, and I was absolutely flabbergasted. I thought somehow they had to doctor the images on TV, but it's not. It's just as electric green, and the flowers are just as beautiful, and um, uh, the, the, the trees and the skies, I mean, the way it, it's like walking in a painting. There's not a weed anywhere on the property. You could waste your whole life trying to find one. You'll never succeed. It's the most epically, I told my wife, it's like the most glorious place in all of the earth. It's a place that is seemingly unaffected by the curse. It's a foreshadowing of glory to come. I might be taking it too far. <laughs> but that's what it looks, you look at it and you go, what, where, where's the thorns and thistles? Where's the crabgrass? Where's a weed? Where's some effect of the curse? Now, the truth is, Augusta is not immune from the curse. It's not the one place that wasn't affected. It's only the way it is because of hundreds of men and women giving their time and talent to creating this uh, uh, little utopian place of, of, uh, of, of just, just glory beheld, and it is no expense spared to fight off the effects of a curse, of a creation subject to the curse, and give us this little glimpse of what's meant to be and what one day will be. When I watch the Masters, which I'm recording, I like that they play golf. But even if you took out the golf, I could stare at the TV for four hours. I could just look at it. My boys, every, they're like, Dad, look at that. Look at that. Dad, look at that. I mean, that's just what you, over and over. And I'm going, I, I just smile. God, there's nothing like it. It's what it was like one day, and it's what it'll like, be again like one day. But you know what creation's personified as today? You know what Romans 8 says? It's longing. It's hoping. It's frustrated. And it's longing for the day where the curse will be lifted, that weight that it bears will be lifted. It's longing for the day of the revealing of the sons of God. When Christ comes again, the king reverses the curse. He lifts the curse and creation will sing. Personified is singing in its newfound freedom when the king comes and makes all things new. And Jesus says, if my disciples don't say it, the stones will sing out. It's him. It's our Savior, the one that will restore everything lost in Eden and make all things new. The king came, but he comes to die. Watch this. And when he drew near, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. You know, there's this scene of multitudes uh, singing in excitement. They are rejoicing. They're shouting hosannas. They're, the Messiah is here. There's this epic celebration. And right in the middle of it, there's a guy on a donkey with tears coming down his cheeks. And he sees Jerusalem. And he says, you've missed the time of your visitation. The whole law and the prophets given to point you to, the, to your need and to this day when I would come for you. 
and in your blindness and your pride. He wept because they couldn't see him for who he was. He wept knowing that he was about to die. They would arrest and kill him. But he didn't weep because he was going to die. He wept because they were going to die. From the beginning of his ministry to the end, Matthew 9, he saw the crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, and his heart broke. To the end of his ministry, on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus' heart breaks for the one that is far from God, that cannot see the love of God displayed in the Messiah. Heart breaks, it's the compassion of the King on full display right here. He weeps over the spiritual and physical destruction coming, the darkness coming on Israel as they reject him and crucify him. And he weeps for them. The coming of the king from the east, the promised one. The declaration of the king, bring the donkey, I'm the Messiah. The announcement of the king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's here. The rejection of the king. You tell those disciples, rebuke them, correct them in the compassion of the king. He won't correct them, but he'll weep over those who are in darkness. Now, that's the story of the day the king came to die. Of course, it's not the full story. Uh, Because three days after they lay his body in a tomb, three days later, they'll find the tomb empty. You want to come next week for more on that. And then 40 days later, just before he ascends, visibly ascends, to sit at the right hand of the Father in glory, he says to the disciples, you're going to see me ascend. And one day, you're going to see me descend in the very same way I ascended. Visibly, you're going to see me coming on the clouds. I will come again to rule and reign over my kingdom. And in the meantime, what's he doing? He's calling out a people. In fact, we're called the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church from every tongue, tribe, people, nation, gathering a people to himself to declare his name and bear his name before the nations. And he says, not even the gates of Hades will be able to prevail against my church. I will build my church and he's doing it. And here we are On the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, he's building his church until one day he comes again to rule and to reign. And that day is coming. See, this this was the day he came to die. But you you know what our Bible also tells us? It tells us the story of the day he comes to reign. And I'd like to end our time just pointing us forward, being reminded we live in the in between of these two great comings. And the day's coming, Revelation 19, I want to read it to you, when he comes again. And listen to what the story says. And it'll happen just like this. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey this time. What's he going to ride when he comes again? A white horse. He will come through the, uh, on the white horse to Jerusalem, to the temple. He will come not as a lamb to be slaughtered. He will come lion in Judah. Look what it says about him faithful and true in righteousness. He'll judge and make war. Now, this is what they expected. They had the prophecies that said he must be killed, but they also had the prophecies that said he'll reign. They didn't see the gap. They didn't understand what to make of these prophecies. And in their hatred, they killed him. But understand, he will come, according to the prophets, to judge and make war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. 
and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He is coming to rule and to reign. And these days are, are, um, these days are, are meant to be lived in light of these days. C.S. Lewis said these days are like shadow lands where we can only see glimpses of what it will be on that day when we're finally in the light. Uh, these days we're sojourners, sojourners and exiles in this world. We're not of this world. This isn't home. That day we'll go home. These days we're passing through. Don't get caught up. Don't get distracted. Don't think this is home. That's home. Where he comes from and where he will take us. These days there's struggle. That day we'll know what it is to be free. These days we grieve suffering. We grieve loss. We grieve death. I grieve that my sons will never know my father on this side of glory. But I don't grieve as those who have no hope. I've got hope that one day they'll know the strength of his grip. That one day they'll know the warmth of his embrace. Because I've read how the story ends. And I know that one day our faith and our hope gives way to sight. One day we'll actually be in his presence. We'll be in the very presence of Jesus. And everything here will grow strangely dim. And you know what we're going to do when we're gathered around the throne room of grace and the presence of the lamb slain who takes his seat in the presence of God the Father? You know what we're going to do in that day? We're going to sing. I'm pretty sure we're going to play a lot of baseball too, but we're going to sing. I think that's in here somewhere. We're going to sing and we're going to worship. And it's not going to be like this distracted worship with our mind on other things and, uh, and Satan trying to uh, distract us and, 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 and not just think about our schedule or overwhelm with shame of sin. It's not going to be like this dimmed view. It's, it's not going to be like this, uh, the, what we do now, which is a, a, uh, a, a, ex, a mere expression in the shadowlands of what one day will be seen in full effect with no restriction, no distraction, no shame, guilt, or condemnation. We'll be free not to worry about what the guy next to us thinks when we're worshiping and we're going to be singing out. You know what it says in Rev 7? It says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Look at this, from every nation, all tribes and people and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. I love it. That 2,000 years ago, the followers of Jesus ran to get palm branches. They gathered around, they waved him, and they sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that one day soon, we will again have palm branches. We will wave them and we will sing, salvation belongs to the Lord our God and to the Lamb. He came to die. He'll come to reign. Make no mistake, he's alive and he's coming. The king who has come is the king who is coming. Father, I'm impressed upon as I 
read and study this text this week, I don't want to live for the wrong kingdom. I don't want to get caught up in the business merely of this kingdom. Lord, a kingdom that will fade, a kingdom that will only last. And in the eyes of eternity, it'll only be a glimpse. It'll just be a blip on the radar of eternity. And yet your kingdom, which you are establishing even now through your church, which will prevail over evil, which will be finally and firmly established when you return again, which you will reign over forever and ever. Let us live wisely in these times. Let us be sojourners. Let us be exiles. Let us not hold tightly to the things of this world. Let us live in such a way that we would magnify and exalt and make known the name of Jesus above every name, that we would steward well the days you have given us, that we would be watchful and vigilant for your return, that our lives may declare Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.